This is Mark 3. So again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and a man with a withered, and there was a man with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with the disciples to the sea. Uh, yeah. And the great crowd followed from Galilee to Judah and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. With, with the great crowd, uh, yeah. when, the, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because, the, uh, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, guys, that's how I read. Uh, so, and he, and he healed many so that all who had disease pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountains and called to him on those he desired. And he came up, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him. And he might send them out and preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandries, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard, they went out and seized him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribe... <laughs> And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them, and he called them, to, or, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, but whatever, and whatever blasphemies he utters. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, 
Here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. I think that's the reading voice we should have in our head whenever we open up the Bible, right? He is my mother and my brother and my sisters. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, I think we'll just do that every week. Have someone read the Bible. Yes, right? So as I said, we're going through the book of Mark um, in chapter 3. I sound, am I really loud? No? Okay. Thanks for that feedback. I just feel like you're all with me this morning. I love it. So in the book of Mark, and at the very beginning of Mark in chapter 1, um, he tells us why he's writing the book. He says that this book is the news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And Messiah is actually a title, meaning king. And so here we're presented with Jesus, the king, which means that as a king, he has a rule and a dominion. And it was understood by the biblical writers and hearers that the intention of the king, Messiah, was to bring God's ways, bring his peace and his hope and his justice and his freedom and his goodness into the world. And um, in Jesus, as the, this um, gospel will present, the perfect expression of God's ways are lived out in humanity. Um, and so that's what this book is supposed to um, wake us up to, the ways of Jesus, the ways of God. And I have a little friend who is called Margot. Sometimes I call her Margles. And she is um, two years old. Is she two? She's one. <laughs> She's one. And um, lately, um, when I've been hanging out with her parents, John and Christy, um, they've been delighted to see that Margot is now um, aware of her hurts and her bruises and her cuts and her owies. You know, it's that time in a child's life where they make sense, though, when they fall down, there's an owie, and then... They look at somebody else's and they're like, oh, you have one too. And it's this like moment of connection and this moment of sadness. And it's actually really tender when it's a one-year-old. Um, and so as I'm watching her, you know, communicate with her parents about these things that she's finding, um, I watch um, John and Christy enjoying her, like attending and attuning to pain and to, to see her empathy at such a young age. And so then they join her in that. Oh, yeah, sweetheart, that's sad. That's an owie. That's a boo-boo, you know? Like, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what you're supposed to do when you see things that are broken or hurt. And so we should actually be that tender. We should be that attentive and inquisitive about the things that are wrong in our world, the things that are wrong in each other. And so as Jonathan read this passage, like what becomes clear in this moment is that Jesus is paying attention to what is wrong in the world. He's attending to it and attuning to it. And it grieves him. And he acts and does something on behalf of those who are experiencing that brokenness. And he kind of is inviting others into that with him. And so the people, though, unlike John and Christy, my friends that are tuned to their one-year-old, the people are not participating with him at all. In fact, they're doing the contrary. 
So at the very beginning in verse one, you see this moment where Jesus walks into the synagogue and there's a person with a withered hand there. And it says that the Pharisees are keeping watch over him. And he recognizes that they don't want him to attune to this man's um, difficulty, but he does. And he brings him up in front of everyone and he says to these Pharisees, is it not okay to do good? Like he calls them out for their lack of attunement and attentiveness. Is it not okay to attend to that which is broken in the world? And they're silent. Their response is silence. And so he is angry and grieved at their hard-heartedness. And so as he heals this man and attunes to that brokenness, what do they do? They oppose him. When they leave, they plot to destroy Jesus. And then in verse 7, right? these people are pressing around Jesus. And what did Jonathan say? They're going to crush him. Like they're pressing in, it's these crowds, they're pressing in so hard. Like they want Jesus to attune to and attend to him, to them. Because they recognize that he has the power to do something about that which has hold of them. And so they press in towards him. And then in verse 13, you have these 12 disciples that are um, called towards Jesus to participate with him in the work that he's about to do. And then Mark tips the hand and he says that, yeah, one of these dudes is going to betray Jesus. So there's opposition that's happening even in this moment. And then in verse 20, his family basically think he's mad. It says that. They're like, Jesus, you got to, you know, we don't know what you're about or what you're doing, but it's looking a little ridiculous. And so please just like step away. So it's not only his strangers that are opposing him, but his own family don't like the fact that he is attuning to the brokenness in the people around him. And then finally, he comes to this crew of folks that have come down from Jerusalem, referred to as the scribes. And the scribes had knowledge of the law and they could draft legal documents like contracts for marriages and divorce and loans. And they would also have been really aware of the Torah, the biblical teachings. And they say about Jesus that he's possessed. They want to discredit Jesus and this attunement that he's having in front of the crowds. Dude's possessed. And so we have this moment here where everyone is against Jesus and we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would so many people be in this moment in Mark chapter 3, be so oppositional and against Jesus? He's a man that is showing up healing people, attuning to them. He's teaching them. What's the deal? Like, why so much opposition to that kind of attending? And it's that Jesus is a threat. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is Jesus a threat to? And like Johnny talked about last week, he is a threat to the status quo to the ideology of the day. But he's also, and that's seen in how the Pharisees respond to him, he's also a threat to his um, friend's idea of what it means to be a king, what it means to be Messiah. And we know that to be true because his friend betrays him. Jesus' actions of moving to the cross threaten 
Judas's idea of what a king should be about. And so he betrays him. And he's also a threat to his family's dignity and honor. We can't have this, Jesus. These scribes are literally thinking you're possessed. Just come away with us. He has become a threat to his own family's dignity and honor. But there's a significant threat other than these that is happening that is in the text that we need to pay attention to. We might actually have a tendency to read over this threat or to just dismiss it or to be a little uncomfortable with it. So let's read together verses 22 to 28 again. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his home. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay, before we dive into this, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you that you want to communicate something to us about you. And I just pray for all of us in this space right now when we hear words like Satan and demons and unclean spirits and unforgivable sins and eternity. Um, yeah, we don't always um, live into peacefulness. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide our thoughts, that you would attune and attend to us, and that we would be willing, willing to hear um, what your word has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So all of us come in here with thoughts and ideas and feels about this kind of language. Satan, demons. And some of you will walk in here and it's an immediate negative feeling that you have. And some of you will hear those things and eh, it's a little neutral. And some of you maybe even have positive, um, well, maybe not positive, but it's not exactly an overwhelming negative feeling that you have when you hear words like these. Sometimes our imaginations for the notion of Satan or evil or unclean spirits is too big. And sometimes our imaginations are too small. And we have like cultural caricatures that will inform us of religious histories. And we're also informed by um, culture, movies and books. And so you have Frodo, you know, the little hobbit. And what's his job? What do hobbitses do besides having elevensies? Right? Hobbitses. Hobbitses get the ring. And they throw it into Mordor in order to, like, destroy evil, right? Like, is this picture of good versus evil that is, like, depicted for us. 
between Frodo and Mordor. Or you have Harry, you know? Harry, the little kid with the wit, tiny little wand, and what's he going to do? He's going to take on Voldemort. I was like, I had to get my facts straight. I was like, is Voldemort Slytherin? And thankfully, Laura was like, no, it's actually Voldemort. And I was like, thanks for the clarity. <laughs> Not really up on my Harry Potter, unfortunately. But it's this picture, right? Harry, he's going to take on the evil forces. And I was asking them around the circle this morning, are there any more? Are there any more that I should know about? One person was like, well, you can talk about the supervillain and the superhero, right? The superhero is always taking on the supervillain. I was like, well, who's, who's Batman against? Or who's Spider-Man against? Or, and one dude was like, I can tell you all of those, right? They're these caricatures of what it means to be a supervillain and what it means to be a superhero. And usually the superhero takes on the supervillain and conquers, and then there's some like, crafty thing that happens, and the supervillain comes back, right? Then there's also a lot of you I know in here that play D&D, and I came to learn this morning that you can always be on the good side. Sometimes you're on the bad side, and sometimes you're on the good side. And I was like, that's a really brilliant game. Because it feels like it's true to life. It's not always this or that, or good or bad. But when we hear words like unclean spirits and demons and Satan, oftentimes we attach meaning instead of attending to the depth of the meaning that is being offered to us in the text. And we attach meaning based on these things that we've seen or these caricatures that we know. And so we attach meaning, like I said, instead of attending to the meaning of what is happening in the text. And so when we read here, how are we supposed to make sense of it? We're supposed to make sense of it in here. This is how we make sense of the words that we read in Mark, is by looking at this text. And so in Genesis 3, it's the first time that we're introduced to the serpent. And it's the creature in the Bible that first portrays evil. And it distorts what God has purposed for good. The Bible Project right now has a really good video series on this, and I'd encourage you to go and take a look. So we have the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, and there are further images in the text that depict this character that is evil, or this creature that is evil, and it's depicted by snakes, or sea dragons, or a dark desert creature. And then this is given titles like tempter, and the evil one, and the devil, and then Satan. And Satan actually isn't a name, it is also a title, and that title means the adversary. So Satan is not a name, it is a title, and the title is adversary. And it is not for anything, it is always against everything. And it drags people, and it drags systems, and it drags everything into a space of chaos and disorder in the text. And it works most predominantly through lies to do so. And so often we see Satan as this little red guy sitting on somebody's shoulder, like whispering, do that naughty thing, you know? Like that's not the notion that the text is telling us about this entity. And oftentimes it's more of a cosmic reality that is communicated. And so I'm going to quote Josh Butler, 
He wrote a really good book that you can see here, The Skeleton in God's Closet. So if you want more resources on this topic, you can read this book. And this is what Josh says about Satan. Satan is a political figure. When Satan tempts Jesus, he offers him the kingdom of the world, the kingdoms of the world. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Satan assumes he has them to give. He assumes the kingdoms of the world are his, and Jesus does not correct him. What is going on here in the biblical story? What is going on here in the biblical story? How do the empires of the world belong to Satan? The story I would suggest goes something like this. When Adam and Eve turn from God and they turn implicitly towards the serpent, joining his rebellion. Prior to this, Adam and Eve's authority was under God, called to co-reign with him. But when they turn, believing the serpent's lie, they implicitly place themselves under that lie, serving, severing the world from God, unleashing the accuser's destructive power in God's good world. They co-reign, whether they know it or not, with Satan. And so how does Satan work? Evil. And evil is a divisive force that aims to destroy the flourishing God intends for human community. So evil is a divisive force that aims to destroy the flourishing God intends for the human community. And it's a parasite, Josh goes on to say. It feeds on what is good and it corrupts it. And it's aggressive. And he says, like a parasite feeding off a healthy host, it's a quote, evil needs God's good will. God creates good things. He does not corrupt them. Evil corrupts good things. It cannot create them. Sin is the activity of corruption. Again, evil corrupts good things. It cannot create them. God creates good things. He does not corrupt them. Where are we getting this from? The text. This is what it tells us about Satan and about evil and about goodness and about God. And so sin is the activity of corruption. And it's easy to automatically assign a meaning of sin to kind of individual behaviors, which is not altogether untrue. But in the text, um, Sin is also described very vividly in terms of a broader, more cosmic notion of structures and systems. And so it becomes this structural reality that's this force that destroys human flourishing. And this week, I was watching a video. Um, it came up on my news feed, which is, um, I look at the BBC. And so it came up this video, and I was like, oh, this looks really interesting. It was a video about people who had lived under the dictatorship of North Korea. And so this moment of them in the video was them having the opportunity to talk about what it feels like to live in a dictatorship like North Korea. And the UN report um, that they kind of briefed before watching this, these um, people who had managed to get away from North Korea said this, um, about what is happening in North Korea. It says that it is a people trapped in a cycle of corruption. An entire nation of people that are trapped in a cycle of corruption. 
And so instead of being under an authority that cares and supports and encourages, they are in a um, society or under a government that oppresses and silences and controls. And so one guy who was on this documentary, he was quite emotional And he talked about the systems and the expectations of what it meant to live in those systems. And he said the hardest things were for him was the things he was told he had to say about other people. And you could feel the pain like through the screen as he was talking about that. But they also talked about friends that they had there and foods that they enjoyed. And so there's this tension that while they were trapped in this oppressive reality, it was actually a corruption of something good. It wasn't altogether bad. They were delighted to also talk about the foods that they now couldn't eat, but was only a part of that country. And so at the end, um, the person who was interviewing is like, what would you want the world to know about your country? What would you want the world to know about your people? And he said, "Um, what would you want them to remember from this little tiny video clip? And um, he said, freedom. I hope people remember that about my country. That we are desperate for freedom. They're desperate for freedom from a system that corrupts and destroys the possibility for human flourishing. And while it's easy to see that those people in North Korea need freedom, we also need freedom from that which drives corruption. So Josh continues to say, rage seeks after a person to cut down. Greed hunts for a resource to devour. Lust is on the lookout for a body to objectify. Pride is on the prowl for an opportunity itself, exaltation. And if we're honest, when we hear words like rage and lust and greed and pride and self-preservation, we submit to them too. We submit to them. We need freedom from them too. We need freedom from all of these. We need freedom for the sake of our families. We need freedom for the sake of our communities. We need freedom for them for the sake of the systems that we build. And we need freedom from them for the sake of ourselves. And Jesus has said from the beginning of Mark that this is what he's come here to bring. Freedom. From a system that corrupts and a heart that is corrupted. And so when we get to this section, it should be shocking to us when we read what these scribes are saying. Like Jesus has communicated what it is that he's bringing freed from, this corruption, 
the, the tendency that we have towards this kind of corruption, the systems that we build in the name of this kind of corruption, he's come to say that he's bringing a different kind of order. And then he illustrates it as he attends to the things that are broken in people. And he attends to it and attunes to it and has the power to do things about it. And then all of a sudden these scribes come in and they're like, hey, yo, he's possessed by the devil. He's of Satan. And immediately, as we know this story, we should be like, what? It's literally like someone coming to Frodo and saying, dude, you taking that ring, but you're actually going to ignite Mordor when you throw it in there. And you're like, no, you don't have a grasp on the story at all. So when they come in this moment, let's be clear on what is going on here. Jesus is being accused of aligning with a kingdom that takes that which is good and actively and aggressively desires to create chaos and disorder. That is what he is being accused of in this moment. And they make that accusation to his face. It should literally stop us in our tracks when we read this. Like, what? And so he calls the scribes to listen in. All right, I hear your accusation. I might have lost my mind on them. Jesus doesn't. He simply calls them in and tells them some stories. That's what parables are. And then he lands the story poignantly. And his says that in the end, the other kingdom is through, whether it's divided against itself, which is what you presume, or whether someone takes it by being more powerful, which Jesus is hinting at verbally and also through his actions. But he ends this story by saying, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And so before we get to what he's saying in verse 28, let's look at verse 29, because we might not be able to focus on verse 28 with this, these other two verses kind of shadowing behind it. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. So the spirit in the text is identified as the very presence of God and the very presence of Jesus. And so they've misidentified him. They say that he has an unclean spirit, therefore he is not bringing the presence of God to bear. That he isn't too he says he is. In fact, he's completely other on the other side. And Jesus here, when he talks about that which is unforgivable, is not talking about a specific sin. There's an illustration that I read, and I thought it was um, captured the essence of this moment the best. And it said, if a doctor is offering you a life-saving operation and you identify them as a murderer you won't let them do the operation, right? It wouldn't be a great idea. 
I'm a doctor, I'm a physician, I'm here to save your life. No, you're not, you're in a murderer. You cannot, like, do your operation on me. So everything Jesus says, done in the activity of corruption, sin, will be forgiven. But then he lands it with what will happen if you reject the forgiver, the freedom giver. And we hear that and it sounds weighty. He meant it to sound weighty. There's a warning. It's not a judgment. It's a warning to these scribes. You have the capacity to reject the forgiver, the freedom giver. And what I know is that God is more gracious than we could ever conceive. And in this moment, what we know for certain is that Jesus wants us to see who he is. The one who has the capacity to offer us what we need. And I'm inclined to agree with Josh Butler, would read his book, that there is always access to freedom and that there is always access to forgiveness even on into eternity. But the greater gift is that we have access to it now. Which he tells us in verse 28. All. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Everything will be forgiven. All the ways that we participate in the oppositional kingdom, our rage, our greed, our lust, our self-preservation, and the systems that we build on those things that motivate that corrupting factor, Jesus says it will be forgiven. All of it, forgivable. All of it, I can give freedom. That's another way to put it, freedom. We'll have freedom from the shame of it. Freedom from the power of it. Freedom from the guilt of it. The weight of it. The pain of it. Freedom. And that freedom comes to us in Christ. All this junk, every last bit will be forgiven. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are forgiven? That with Jesus and in relatedness to Jesus, everything is forgiven. I was having ice cream with Fatima this week. We have a little place that we like to go to and we were talking about this because I always like to get insight from others when I'm, I'm doing a sermon and this one felt especially weighty. I was like, Fatima, I've got this zinger of a sermon I'm going to give on Sunday, and I'm going to be talking about Satan and the evil one, and we're also going to be talking about forgiveness and the fact that um, Jesus forgives all things, and he declares it here. And I love what she said to me. She said, well, if we know that we're always going to be forgiven, what stops us from doing the same things over and over and over again? <laughs> I was like, well, 
That's a question I need to bring up on a Sunday. What a brilliant thing to notice, right? So we can receive the grace in this moment. There, there is nothing that we can do that is not coverable. That shame is coverable. That guilt is removable. That pain is healable and restorable. That's the who Jesus is. It's what he's about and what he wants to do in our midst through his spirit. And so if that, that's what he's about, why wouldn't we just keep on doing our thing? It's all forgivable. But he offers us something else too. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Thank you, Jonathan. Jesus not only offers us forgiveness, but he immediately says that, and then he immediately interjects this into the moment too. It's this beautiful, to me it's like the most beautiful move of a dance that you could ever have. I offer you forgiveness, and I offer you kinship. There's a, a kinship that you will have when you're with me, when you submit to me, when you are a part of my kingdom, my family. There's a man who understands this more than anyone I've ever encountered. He's called Father Gregory Boyle. Is anyone familiar with him? Nice. Google him. He's amazing. Everything he says is like gold. I mean, maybe that's a little too complimentary of anybody, but it's very good. Let's just say that. Um, He started this ministry called Homeboy Industries. He lives in L.A. He was assigned as a priest to L.A. And um, in L.A., there are 1,100 gangs. And loyalty is like blood, and it takes blood to prove it. That's what it means to be in a gang. There's a familiar, a kinship reality to the gang world that you're in. And so he worked um, initially when he was posted between these two um, rival gang neighborhoods, and he like, observed and watched all that was going on, and so he finally decided to start a gang intervention rehab and re-entry center. He's been doing it now for 30 years. It's one of the biggest, or it is the biggest in the world, like gang intervention rehab and re-entry center. You can buy homeboy bread. You can, he's like, homeboy plumbing didn't really work because I didn't realize that people didn't want gang members in their houses. <laughs> He's like, well, that's one of them that didn't work. But he has a lot of these industries that he works um, with these gang members. There are 15,000 people a year that walk into his doors or into the door. And what he said was that these people needed an exit ramp off the violent freeway. We need that too, right? That's what Jesus offers, an exit ramp off the violent freeway. And so the main thing that he talks about is kinship as intervention. It's the best. He doesn't believe in, in, um, he talks a lot. I shouldn't say he doesn't believe. He talks a lot about why the judicial system isn't rehabilitating a lot of these gang members. And so he talks about kinship as intervention. He brings people from different gangs together and he gives them jobs and classes and life together. 
He tells this story. I had it on a loop, like Nate put it together for me, but it just was a little awkward. Um, it was from a TED talk that he'd given, and he talks about these two guys, Manuel and Snoopy. And he's like, they're going one day to give a talk somewhere about homeboy industries. And um, he says, Manuel and Snoopy are texting back and forth to each other. And he's like, yo, dude, or yo, dog, or whatever he says on the thing. He's like, get down here. I just got arrested for being the ugliest dude in, t- in the town. And the guy's like, ha, ha, ha. And he's like, you need to come down here so that they, see- they can see that they got the wrong guy. And father, the father says, you know, we're in the car and we're like just laughing our heads off. And then he says, but you know what? It used to be bullets that they exchanged. And now it's text messages. And he says, the problem in the world is that we've forgotten that we belong to each other. So how do we stand against forgetting that? And he says, I suspect that if kinship was our goal, we would no longer be promoting justice. We would, in fact, be celebrating it. For no kinship, no justice. No kinship, no peace. Jesus offers us kinship. And later on at Mark, it says that the will of the Father is that we would love him and that we would love each other. And Father Boyle would say that love doesn't come out of our service to one another. But an ability to see ourselves in kinship to one another. So it's not about I'm having the resources and I give them to you. Or I'm in this position and you're in that position. But what he says is that it's about the ability to see ourselves in kinship with one another. Because there's something about lust that is maybe a lot less appealing when you see that woman as your sibling. And there's something about greed that is a lot less appealing when you know that the greed that you're taking means that somebody else who is your sibling doesn't have. And there's something about pride that is a lot less appealing when you know that your self-aggrandization actually humiliates your father or your mother or your grandfather. We're invited into kinship with one another as a way of justice, as a way of peace. So not only are we forgiven, We're invited into something that creates the opportunity to be something other in order to be tender and and attentive and inquisitive to the things that are wrong in the world and the things that are wrong in each other, not because we have to, not out of duty, not out of obligation, because these are our people, dude. It's my brother and my sister and my mother. That's where the motivation comes, kinship. And when we see that, then we bring one another to Jesus, the freedom giver, the healer, and the restorer. And that's why we come to this table every week, because this table points us to Jesus, the healer, the forgiver, the freedom giver. 
And as he wipes away the shame and he deals with pain and he brings restoration and he attunes and he attends, he invites us to be in kinship with him and in kinship with him, we then have kinship with one another. And we begin to live a different story because of that. We don't believe the lies of corruption. We don't build systems that way. We build them differently so that people are seen and loved and attended to. And so as you come to this table today, I'd ask you to think to yourself, where do you need forgiveness? Jesus gives it to you. Jesus gives it to you. There's nothing that you've done or that you've left undone that he won't cover over, that he won't forgive you for. It's grace and it's free and it's given. And then where do you need kinship? Where do you need to stand against forgetting that we belong to one another? Maybe your practice this week will be naming all the people that you have forgotten that belong to you. Maybe you do that as a family. Maybe you do that as a couple. Maybe you do that as a group of friends. These are the people that we have forgotten that we belong to or that we belong to as a society. And then see what the spirit of Jesus does. Jesus always invites us into freedom, whether it's for the first time or for the 55th time. And so know that you're forgiven. Know that you're offered kinship. And in that name, the people that you've forgotten that you belong to. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you that it's um, a moment in your actual life where you experienced a lot of opposition. And it was a moment where you still attended to, you still attuned, you still had empathy for all of these people in this text that opposed you. And we know that's true of you, and so we know that's true of you this morning. That even in the places in our hearts where we oppose you, even in the actions that we've done this week, that have opposed you, even the things that we will continue to do that oppose you, you will attend to us. You will attune to us. And you will always call us back to freedom. And sometimes you'll do that in a healing and sometimes with a stern warning. And so I pray, Spirit, that we would always be attentive to what it is that you want us to hear about you. So that in kinship with you, we can belong to one another, which is what you want for us, to be one even as you are one. And so we pray that we would be recipients of your love and that we would then um, have that love to offer out into the world and that the systems that we build and the people that we, we are would smack of a different kingdom, would taste differently. And so I pray as your people come to encounter you at your table that you would clarify by your spirit the ways that you set them free, that you forgive them. And Lord, would you bring up the people in our lives that we've forgotten that we've belonged to, or the people in our society that we've forgotten that we've belonged to. And Jesus, make us whole. We pray in your name. Amen.